Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. 
Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but where to call him Mank? Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is what you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> Welcome one and all to the show. You are listening to The Film Board from The Next Reel on True Story FM. We spoil movies, and this month we're digging into a film that explores a deep story of old Hollywood. Netflix released Mank on Friday, December 4th, about Herman J. Mankiewicz and his part in the creation of Citizen Kane in the 1930s. David Fincher directed it, and it was written by his father, Jack Fincher. It's also wrapped together in a stylized black-and-white delivery that harkens back to the original subject matter. At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins, and you can get in on our conversation by connecting with us on Discord. The True Story server there is a platform for discussions about all of our show content and more. There are entertaining factoids and debates from the entertainment industry as a whole, and interacting with us there will connect you to movie-minded fans from around the world. Check out all the details at truestory.fm. There you can find lots of information about the network as a whole and juicy details about the next real family of film podcasts. So let's start with this one. We're gonna, as we introduce our hosts, I think it's important that we kind of get a sense of what we know, the group of us know, about Citizen Kane and what it means to each of us. Because, you know, that's the subject of this film. So how about it? Tommy Handsome, when did you see Citizen Kane and what are your feelings about it? I first saw this movie in high school, which is a little bit late for being a big film buff. But I saw it in high school, shown to me by a guy named Joe, who continually <laughs> it was one of Joe. my f- a guy named Joe. His hey name kid, was- I got a movie I want to show you. Come here. Hey, extra, extra. That's a movie you're going to watch. Um, <laughs> and it was one of my first experiences that I remember someone watching me watch a movie. Oh. 
Like he was just sort of, cause he was a huge fan of citizen Kane. Um, and so he was watching me be like, do you see how he did that? Oh. That, that? That's not possible. The desk disappeared. Did you see how he did that? That was foam from below. And it was also my first uh, entry into how annoying <laughs> certain people can be about old movies. <laughs> if I'm being honest to quote my old roommate, uh, Brian, Citizen Kane isn't the best movie ever made. It's just the first movie ever made. <laughs> I have enormous respect for it. It is not one that I watch for fun. I'm glad it. it's there, but it's just sort of it's its own thing. Got it. Got it. it, it, it that's a great story, actually, to talk about Citizen Kane because I think uh, I think our generation is going to be kind of in that group as well. Steve mm. Sarmento. Welcome to the show. What's your Citizen Kane story? So it's also a high school experience. I had a uh, film studies class in high school. It was like a one semester elective class. And I was working at the the video store and uh, just had heard so many things about this film and watched it and really, really enjoyed it. I uh, didn't know a lot about the technical first in it, but just the nonlinear storytelling. There was just a lot of visual things to it that, that stood out to me. And it's mm. one that, uh, yeah, it was shortly after I saw it. I it was probably within the next 10 or 15 years. I mean, I guess that's not shortly, but it was, it was the number one film for like all time on all these surveys. Right. It kept showing up as number one, number one, number one. Uh, so I'd have people that were trying, they were interested in films that they heard this is the best movie ever made. They would watch it and say, you know, similar to Tommy, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's a movie, right? It's, it's great. I'm not going to watch. Why is it so great? I think that's the debate. It had to carry this weight of being the greatest film of all time and not having the context or perspective of so many firsts mm. to it of why it, it gained that notoriety. Uh, then it was dethroned by Vertigo, which was a, a Hitchcock that I saw and enjoyed, but didn't. I, I don't. That's a that's a challenging debate, but I will always pick, I think. Citizen Kane over Vertigo because there's something about the story that is almost mythic that speaks to human sure. truths that and that's something that it's not one I watch frequently but it's one that I always enjoy watching and just getting lost in the the richness of the storytelling and the the cinematography of that film. I love that and you know as an aside you worked at a video store what was your video store that you worked at? It was a little independent video store in Libertyville, Illinois called Libertyville Video. Gotcha. Well, the interesting thing, I, I would be interested to see how many of us uh, next real people all worked at video stores because I had a run at Blockbuster, two Blockbusters. Okay. And I know Tommy worked at a, a video store as well. Tommy, you want to tell what your store was called? <laughs> My? Okay. Yeah. I used to work at a video store in Boulder, Colorado, and it was cow themed. It was. Because originally it was only was releasing children's movies. And, you know, children and their love of cows. And so the whole like that, the 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 uh, aesthetic of the store was all black and white sort of cow print thing. Originally, apparently, uh, employees had to wear cow costumes. Luckily, I did not. Um <laughs> Uh, I'm going to leave this up to Steve. Steve, it was a video store that was cow themed. Would you like to take a whack at maybe what that name was? Oh, oh, he's oh, thinking about it, too much it, already. It, it had something about movies in it? That's it. That's exactly <laughs> right. It. it was called Movies. <laughs> and guess what's never been on my resume? 
movies. And I I, I don't mean to interrupt us, but like, Steve, you brought up the video store and I know all three of us did that. So I had to, you know, give that anecdote too. I worked at the Boulder Blockbuster and I transferred there when I went to college there from a Blockbuster I worked at in Minnesota. Oh, you guys were rivals then, Blockbuster and movies. Well, the best part was that because in Colorado, apart from the independent one, which was called Video Station, we had Blockbuster, Hollywood Video and Movies. Hollywood Video's in their mission statement was do what Blockbuster exactly. is doing. That was their whole strategy. <laughs> and movies was do what Hollywood video is doing. <laughs> so it's this horrible multiplicity, like <laughs> like dumbing down of horrible things. It's ridiculous. <laughs> movies. Well, and see, we all worked at video stores and, you know, we're, we're all on the, on the next reel. We all have this thing. So we have this connection to movies. But it's interesting because just like you said, Steve, this Citizen Kane, people talk about it. It's AFI. It's you know, the best movie of all time. You know, uh, every, you guys know me as JJ. I saw Citizen Kane once in 10th grade. It was for a film thing, too. I get that it's an important movie. I respect it. It matters. But I don't know if I super like it or anything like that. Yeah. It's like a venerable great grandparent. He's a wonderful old guy. I'm thankful he exists. I make sure he's comfortable wherever he is, but I'm probably not going to watch it again. And and ultimately, I should probably pick a different metaphor because following through with it a little bit sounds, you know, lonely and cruel to old people. But let's, let's, <laughs> yeah, that did get dark. let's move on and let's talk about your initial thoughts about Mank. And again, you know, to kind of go back to the original because we lost it. Mank is uh, it, it's the story of how Citizen Kane came to from the writer's point of view or or a surround the story surrounding the writer that's leading up to Mank. So is this story consistent or inconsistent with what you think you know about this old chestnut or uh, and how did its execution work for you, Steve? How about Mank? So you said this was a story of how Citizen got made. I'm going to I'm going to amend that and say this is the story cool. of why Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane, which nice. I think is, I like is very different. And for me, I Walked into this not having seen the trailer, not really knowing anything other than it's it's called Mank and it was going to be about him. Uh, I had a great time with this. It worked really well because as a with my background in literature, whenever you're going to focus on writers and you're going to have great literary minds coming together and having some just being able to quote great works of literature, it makes me long for those days when people could just quote Cervantes just, you know, whenever they wanted. I want to hang out with that, <laughs> right? that crowd. I want to be in that writer's <laughs> room where they get paid $750 to $2,500 a week in 1930-something, which I did the calculations, is $2,500 a week is $25,000 a week equivalent. Wow. If I could be making that kind of money to sit around with a bunch of guys gambling on coin tosses and just sort of spitballing movie ideas, sign me up for that reality. I want to be there. But Massive. It, getting back to this, this film in itself, I feel like it is like a companion piece to Citizen Kane. This is a great double feature. The look, the feel, everything. I fell in love with the way Fincher just built this movie for all the little details, knowing he's shooting it on 8K digital monochrome. So it's all black and white. There was no color information that needed to be removed. But yet he goes into the detail of putting in the little cigarette burns in the corner of like when they would signal the change of reels. All those little things made it feel like a movie of that era. And I loved every moment of that because it also was able to speak to me in 2020. We can get into what this movie is really saying or how it might be speaking to us across the decades from these characters, but it did all of these things. And to me, it's not, I mean, Citizen Kane is the donut hole in the middle. Everything works around it. You don't need to have seen Citizen Kane, I think, to really enjoy and appreciate this movie. There's going to be Easter eggs and references. 
Um, I don't know that you need to know a whole lot about the history of Hollywood at that time. I think it works on a basic level, but the more you know, uh, I think the more little bits of pleasure and joy that you're going to get out of it. Cool. Cool. That's that's a glowing review. I think that's awesome. Tommy, what, what was your experience of Mank? It's interesting that, Steve, that you think that there's not that you think that this already sounds so combative. It's not that it is not intended at all. You like bananas. But I, yeah, it's interesting that you think that anyone cares about what you say. No, that's not at all what I meant. Um, I found the movie very challenging in a really good way. Yeah. Um, Meaning that I don't think that you need. I feel like it, well, here, we can get into whether it's important that you've seen Citizen Kane or what you know about old Hollywood later. What I should say is I had an enormously great time watching this movie. I do think it is overlong. I do think that it is works. At one point, uh, to what Steve was talking about, it I felt at one point that it was two movies hmm. in one, yeah, and I didn't understand the connection until I really did. And then going along with Steve, its connection to now is so timely. Yeah, it's ridiculously timely. Um, I assume that that's maybe one of the reasons, not why Jack Fincher would have written it back then, but why maybe David Fincher. His son would have maybe wanted to uh, make it now. Yeah. Um, it is, I just think it's incredibly watchable. I thought it was incredibly charming. It is a masterful work, technically. I had a little bit of trouble sometimes uh, with its main character of okay. Mank, just in that he sort of becomes a Zelig or a Forrest Gump at times, albeit incredibly well-spoken, but I never really got a sense of him. Yeah. The movie is called Mank. It's about Mank. I never really understood him that much. It doesn't really seem to care about him. It's using him as a vehicle through history to talk about what, and there are good sides and bad sides. Either way, um, how I would just sum up my initial thoughts is I had an enormously good time Watching the movie, I'm not sure exactly how much it stuck with me. Okay. Well, I think that the point that you make about Mank is really interesting, too, because I hadn't thought about that. But everything we learn about him is really because it's his story. It's just there's stories about him as opposed to him as a person. And I think that's I think that's really interesting to think that maybe the, the greater point or the or I shouldn't say greater, but the additional point about the film is more about what they want to convey through telling Mank's story as opposed to the story of Mank as a person. Which is incredibly meta for the movie. Right. Right. In itself. Right. Yeah. My my feeling about the movie. So I really, really liked it, too. I enjoyed everything about Yay. it. I thought it was I thought it was technically marvelous. And I haven't seen a lot of black and white films. So that I thought was really kind of special. Um, I found myself questioning as I go through if everyone's going to like it. And that's why I think, Steve, you bringing up the point of, you know, what people need to know going in. I, I want to talk about that more deeply, too, because my assumption was just because I love film so much and learning about the differences and the and the lore and the past and stuff that's the kind of stuff i really dig but when i think about who i want to uh, recommend this movie to i think i might struggle with that but i i want to get into that too i i think that from what we're all saying we we each had somewhat of a different take on the movie but we all liked it a bit too so let me let me give a quick synopsis of what we are delivered in Mank. And I, I still haven't figured out if it's easier to write these about fictitious stories or if those are based on reality. My, my theories about it kind of back off all the time, but uh, I'm going to... Yeah, you're going on a real roller coaster. I'm going to give you this one and then I want you guys to, you know, just like you said, Steve, I want you to amend me if, if you find something here that's different. So uh, Mank, we've talked about Mank now, Herman J. Mankowitz is a screenwriting drunk. 
that is hobbled in a car accident <laughs> and in his company. I say that to start this off because they make such a big deal of his drunkenness. So like, sure. I think that's key that we learn, right? So Mank is a screenwriting drunk that is hobbled in a car accident and in his convalescence is commissioned to write a script that will mock one of the most powerful men in the world in the 1930s. The film intercuts this harried mission with historical vignettes of Mank's relationship to that man and the world he is working to both expertly and creatively expose with a piece of art spilling connective inferences of power and corruption turn after turn. The Oof. challenges of Mank's creative process imbued with his alcoholism and sharp eccentricities lead to crises that reveal the man's character and bring him along the path to what he believes is a righteous conflict with the subject of his piece, the world he lives in, and ultimately even the patron of his commission, Orson Welles. How'd I do? Wow! You are the mank of this podcast. <laughs> well done. And, and, and that kind of puts into, you know, the, like the amendment you're talking about, Steve, I think it's key to say this is this is what the story is around. But are, are there additional things that we need to say about what happens in the movie before we get into more details here? I, I think you you get onto it. And I think you <clears throat> it's a valid point of it's titled mank. Is it is it really about him or is it a story that he's central to it. I think it, it it comes down to there. I think one of the flaws, you know, is that we don't get enough about the man because as you say, he's this, uh, you know, screenwriting drunk. We don't have a sense of his technical prowess really other, you know, there's nothing. Oh, he show. gambled too. Well, he's yes, a gambler, he's so. a gambler. He's, yes. He's <laughs> definitely got a gambling problem, but we see a lot of scenes where he's writing. We get the sense that he's this talented writer, but we don't have the sense of that from any of the flashbacks of like, Here's this notoriety he has. Clearly, he's got a position at the studio. He's able, he's in a, you know, very talented writer's room. But that's one of the things we don't get a lot about him, you know, with his his wife, Sarah. There's not a whole lot about that because the story really is about his relationship with these with these two other men. And that's really the, I think, the 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 focus of the story. It's not a character piece. You know, yeah. which you, with a title like Mank, you think, oh, this you is, we're, we're going to learn yeah. a lot about this man oh. and what drives him and all this. And it's not. It's really the the juncture of the, of these three people around this central film, which never really appears within which the film. Which is interesting, too. We don't like, get we... Citizen Kane at all. It's everything before, you know, leading up to the writing of and then afterwards. So it's really, as you said, it's, it's the, his relationship to the world and these these other people. So that's that's the. For me, the strength of the film is that, and I think it will be disappointing if they want like a typical biopic, if they want something that's really going to tell stories about this man. It's not. It's about sort of a pivotal event or themes that I think David Fincher is connecting to that, which gets to, you know, Tommy say, you know, we're talking about how it connects to today. That's really what uh, what I think what it has to say to us in 2020. Well, that gets into that big question that we all kind of talked about here, too. And Steve, you said that, you know, that you don't think that the audience needed to know about Citizen Kane you don't th or, or old Hollywood. But some of those pieces, you know, the fact that they didn't mention Citizen Kane in the movie, we do see, you know, kind of the Easter egg of its original title, which was American and, and, and these things like this. But um, th th I guess that was my concern is that if if you don't know you know, the relationship of, of, of Louis B. Mayer and, and William Randolph Hearst and that kind of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is kind of assumed. Um, what, what about it made you feel like you don't need to know those things to appreciate Mank in particular, Steve? Well, I think that we get the relationship, all, all the key pieces we're, we're given. We, I don't need to know backstory on 
Louis Mayer and William Randolph first, because I get that all the information I need presented in the story. They're, the Easter egg things are, you know, when we get introduced to the writer's room and we were naming off, you know, S.J. Perlman and, and Ben Hecht. And I'm like, I recognize these names. Then I'm digging into Wikipedia. I'm like, holy cow, the things that these men wrote at that time and the talent there is amazing. But that doesn't matter to this story. And I think it's for those that know the era, it it gives credibility. It honors that era, but it, it's not crucial to the story. Anything that's crucial to the story, I think, is present in the narrative. So if I didn't know who Louis Mayer mm. was, I get I get that through. What does MGM stand for? You know, it's it's not Metro Goldwyn right. Mayer, you know. So it, it's yeah. telling me And then that, it gives the Yiddish of it. Yeah. It, you know, what he thinks it stands for. So I get all of that. I, I think I could I think a a high school kid, just as we, you know, as high school kids watched Citizen Kane, which was, you know, 30, you know, 30, 40 years before us and being able to to figure out and understand a story about a man at that time, you know, a story we didn't know was William Randolph Hearst, perhaps at the time, unless someone told us that I think it was still enjoyable as a film on its own. I think Mank stands on the same ground of, I don't need to know old Hollywood. It'll deepen my appreciation of it. I'll get it on a different level. But I think if I sat down with my kids to watch this and I, I haven't yet, I think the story on its own would, would stand there without them having to have the history. Well, so that's interesting. Mm. And I want to hear what Tommy has to say about this too. But Steve, you said double feature. Which comes first, Citizen Kane or Mank? <laughs> okay, you oh, think on that, Tommy. Yes. So what, Tom, what, what do you need to know about old Hollywood? What do you, what is you, in your opinion, what do you need to know about old Hollywood when you come to Mank? I love Steve's outlook. I just don't know if I believe in it, that this movie is, seems like inside baseball and it seems, uh, he likes, um, but it's, uh, it, it feels it's so quick. There were times and I am old Hollywood adjacent, not adjacent. That means I'm (laughs) dying soon. No, I mean, I'm old Hollywood knowledgeable. And yet there are times that I was so glad I wasn't seeing this in the theater, ironically, because I could turn on the subtitles, right? They're writing. It's this, his girl Friday. Oh, I hope that's what it's called. It's this very fast, very non normative, non realistic kind of dialogue where everyone has the perfect kind of quip, the exact perfect thing. And they, Call William Randolph Hearst by like six different names. Yeah, Willie, W-R, W-R, yeah. W, Willie. It's rough. If I didn't already know about some of these things, if I was, if this was all for me, I feel if all of this was completely fictional, made up of people that weren't real, and I was given the names and the relationship to the names that I was given, I would have been up. Uh, Creek is that a phrase? Yes. Now I'm wondering what if there are real so phrases. It's like you watching the Hobbit <laughs> what I'm films. Right? Is, is that what you're saying? It's like watching the <laughs> Hobbit films. You get all these proper sure. nouns that you have no context for, and you get lost. That's actually I don't know if you're joking, no. but that's exactly right. He's not. Yeah. No, that is because it is so. It's so name specific. Yeah. Okay. It is. And such strong things that uh, I would have been really in trouble. So um, I was just lucky enough to know that like, oh, my gosh, is she playing Marion Davies? I knew that going in and I knew about the whole thing about Citizen Kane and Marion Davies. And immediately I was like, oh, Amanda Seyfried, you're about to be thrown to the wolves. Right. Like I brought this stuff to it. Yeah. And I just don't know, again, what I'm saying. I'm not disagreeing with Steve. I'm, I wish that the 
situation exists that Steve presents. I just don't know if I have confidence. That might go performance by performance, too. So, for example, for me, I knew nothing about Marion Davies. I knew some stuff about Hearst. Very little about Mayer, but I knew nothing about Marion Davies, and yet her performance was spectacular for me. I was very impressed with what she did here. But um, uh, Steve, wait, do you have an answer for which comes first? Uh, no, I think I think it's going to have to be Citizen Kane first because there's a lot of See? there's a lot of visuals not not because of information, but be, there's little like Easter egg moments where I think Fincher's referencing things and you, he takes he it. takes it. And so it, you're going to yeah. see that piece. And I think you need to honor that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, when you first mentioned it in your intro, in your initial thoughts, I had put them in the other order. But as you were talking, the reason why I asked the question is because as you were talking, I was like, oh, if they go the other direction, that's wonderful. So you mentioned another thing. You said um, that um, you think that everything's up there on, on screen. One of the things that I've read since watching it is that um, particularly with Mayer and Irving Thalberg, who was running the studio, that a falling out between Thalberg and Hearst is what led to Marion Davies leaving MGM and going to Warner Brothers. And like that little tidbit, maybe they, maybe you guys can correct me, maybe they mentioned it, but that scene of, of her leaving the lot and doing the big farewell and all this stuff, that was used for a completely different side of the story. It was sort of on an island. Right. For a completely different. No, I agree with you, JJ. Yeah, there was no. You, we were taken away from any of the interstudio politics, and that was—that's the weird thing that I would say about this. In that, you don't need that for this movie. So I'm agreeing with you to that point, Steve. But the historical record is not—is not 100 percent clean, right? And so then, then I come to this question of when we come to this movie, and I've had this with all these historical movies that we've been watching during the pandemic. But is this a movie to teach us what happened, or are are we just here to get a take on what? The writer, what Manx's point of view was here. What's your opinion on that? So I, I don't think any, because we, we've talked about this Chicago, the trial, trial, the Chicago seven of like, right. what's real, what's not, what serves the story. And I think it comes down to, it's the context, it's a historical context for communicating a message to us in this this year. So yeah, I, I, I read some of the, what are the, what, what things were changed because I know everything is, is not as is because it would be really boring if we stuck to the absolute <laughs> historical record. So we have to, yeah. we have to contrive some scenes. So how do we condense time? How do we put, how do we have to recontextualize Marion Davies leading so that we've got a reason for, for that scene, because it's something that's important, but we need to tie it into, to Mank and what's going on with him. And so that I will never say, this is a history lesson because that's 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 not the case. And so it's going to be about is it doing what it needs to do in service of the story and the because for me the message is always of primary importance. What is what is Fincher trying to communicate? He has some reason he wants to tell the story. If I understand that, then everything should become clear as to why all these things happen. What is the reasons for these scenes? What is this telling us about Mank? What is it telling us about the theme of the movie? And that's what, for me, is always the driving factor when I, as an audience, as I'm viewing a movie, which may be completely different from what Jack Fincher wanted to do and what David Fincher wanted to do. I'm an independent, you know, viewer, and that's that's my take on it, in my opinion, uh, which could be drastically different from what he's intending to do with this film. But for me, it's it's really about why Mank makes the crucial decision he he does to to write the story that he does. And you, I mean, that's, that's great. And I think that's really what we get presented with here. I think that's important to know going in. And you say that he chose to tell the story in this way to tell a message today. And, and, and Tommy, I know you, you were talking about some of the parallels of what they're, what we're seeing in this story to some of the 
economic inequality that we have today. Um, is are there, are there ways that you think that, you know, that the rise of media politics and those things are connected in that story of what we have, what we're subjected to in 2020? 100%. I mean, that's, there's uh, what I think maybe I meant to mention, I don't know if I actually said it out loud, but this is, it felt like it was two movies for me yeah, at one point that. Yeah. that I said yeah. it out loud. Yeah. That it was the making of uh, Citizen Kane. And then also the uh, uh, political aspirations of Upton Sinclair, sure. writer of oil and the, uh, what was it? The, what was the big one? Jungle? No, that's yes, the, the jungle. Yes, yes, yes. the jungle. Yes. You're okay, exactly right. Uh, yes, that he was a real muckraker that was trying to change things and the potential rise of democratic socialism way back then. Right. Um, and this is that was that. Uh, his trying to uh, promote Epic, which was the ending poverty in California, which is just sort of pointed out a couple times in the movie. It was really, as you just said, JJ, you're exactly right. The rise of media politics, it changed uh, uh, corporate and political campaigns forever. Right. Because it was the first time that the dream machine in California was like, oh, you know, what's a really good way to convince people like advertisements and yeah. campaign commercials. It was the first time that films were ever used. And in the movie, it's, I mean, someone pays his own psychic price for it in the movie. No spoilers. We spoil movies. Someone shoots himself. There you go. Is, <laughs> is because he wow. accidentally it's the worst laugh line ever, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, he's obviously a conglomerate of certain sorts right. of all of, people of these that people felt terrible about what, happened and what exactly of what they accidentally they were given a job and when that job has real non-narrative sort of um uh ramifications on the political public because upton sinclair really wanted to save the world and Miriam was if if i remember correctly was completely milquetoast just had nothing was such a party line uh GOP at that time that he wouldn't he and he ended up doing nothing um, anyways. And so uh, that's so meta. This movie has so many levels of being meta about viewing the world as a studio system, the world, and then also finding uh, the equivalent of a director and a writer in politics. Which is really kind of fascinating. Did that answer your question at all? Yeah. Well, I think when you talk about how it's changed things and how we see political advertising and all this stuff, the assertion that this film is making, which, you know, who knows if this is the historical record, is that that idea, that glimmer of that came from Mank when he's criticizing Irving Thalberg for not doing enough. And and really, like not even criticizing him for not doing enough, like kind of like making fun of him for not doing enough to support the political candidate that Mank didn't support. And so it makes the assertion that that Mank's glimmer of an idea is what led to really what we're talking about in in the sort of the, the sort of political theater that we have even today in 2020. That's a major which is which is an it feels like an overstep. Yeah, that's why I'm saying but, yeah but in one that is record. but then in one that is fascinating. It is. Because probably the story of just creating, if you separate those two, while originally I thought that it was two different movies, what's happening, if you separate them completely, both are, a well, actually, no, I think that the story of Upton Sinclair and Epic would be its own movie, but the story of the creation of Citizen Kane is very anemic in that yeah. it's really, at its heart, it's a, it's an invalid 
trapped in a hot room <laughs> in the desert writing yes. writing a genius piece, it would be like Barton Fink without any of the laughs or <laughs> any of the fun. Like, who's that for? Yeah. yeah. So I understand why they wanted to, and then to also meta Lee include the idea of how um, uh, Mankiewicz used the nonlinear storytelling, right. the com- the constant jumping back forth, back forth to make things work. And I love that kind of parallel. I think that's yeah. wonderful. I, I, you know, and I think a couple of you guys mentioned the idea of that. Maybe this is why Fincher made this now. Right. Because this screenplay was written by his father and it was written a, a long time ago it was before his father died. Jack Fincher died in 2003. Um, but, but what I found in some of the research is that he actually was intending to make this film much oh, yeah. earlier. It, 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 he had thought to make this. They actually had it cast, right, with Kevin Spacey as the lead and Jodie Foster as the other lead, which I assume was maybe wow. maybe the typist. I'm not exactly sure what role she would play. But um, right. but I think that's that's a completely different experience to be told in pre-2000s culture, U.S. political culture, and the stories that we're connecting it to today and talking about the rise of political theater and what we're experiencing today, I think it makes it a much richer story. I'm I'm happy that they made it today. Um, One of the other pieces about that, you know, was that Fincher, with this screenplay, had made, had this terrible experience on Alien 3, making Alien 3, where he was directing and he was subjected to a a team, a collaborative team of writers that were trying to finish the film as he was shooting. And he had such a negative experience with that. And I I saw an anecdote as well where he said that he had the screenplay of his dad that really sort of painted Orson Welles, the director, as the villain in the story. And, And you imagine this scene where we first meet Orson Welles. In this movie where he comes up in a fog wearing all black and shrouded in this evil it, it thing. It seems like it's character from Touch of Evil. Right? Like it's, it's, yes. it's yeah, it, that he is literally the villain. And I and, and what I saw is that Fincher was was wary of doing that because his experience as a director was so contrast to that in sort of who's the protagonist and the antagonist in this collaborative oh, writing sure. director experience. So he was he from what what I read is that he's sort of watered down the experience of the director as a villain because he wanted to tell this other story. And I bring it up now to say that making this movie or releasing this movie in 2020 connects to all that political theater and tells a I keep saying greater, but I mean, uh, it tells a more nuanced story when you talk about the other aspects of the political situation that was happening in the 30s and the parallels of today, other than just that 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 hole in the donut. Right, Steve, you talked about this, that, that of the Citizen Kane being made in and of itself. So I think I think that's really interesting right. how it connects. Yeah, I think that's, you know, uh, there's been a lot of articles written about the whole Pauline Kael article, you know, about, you know, talk, celebrating Mank and this whole debate for, regarding auteur, auteur theory in the 70s about who was the true architect and, and creator and author of a film. And is it the writer? Is it the director? And her take was, you know, it is the writer and, and using Mankiewicz is that example. And I think that's the wrong it's, it's the wrong lens to to view this. And I think that may have been Jack Fincher's original script but i think you're right that you know david fincher may have watered that down because there was something more more crucial to tell which you know when we talk about the role that orson welles may have played as a villain to me he's still a villain in this and we see this near the end where we have 
one scene, you know, in one of our flashbacks, is sort of a, a showdown confrontation between Mank and and Hurst, and that is immediately followed up with a scene, you know, in in the present uh, between Mank and Orson Welles, and still, it's a it's a battle of control and power, and and Mank wants to assert, you know, his right to to get credit for writing this, and Orson Welles, it's it's both Wells and Hearst are played as these sort of power hungry control men who want control and power. And, and in both cases, Mank is this, you know, is he going to be put in his place? And that's where we get to, I think one of the, the scenes that hopefully people will pay attention to, because I know, I think Tommy, you said maybe it was overly long by the time we get to the Hearst telling the story of the, the parable of the organ grinders monkey that is, I mean, that is in its concentrated core what this, you know, it's a key moment about who's really in control. The monkey thinks he's the one that's in control and he really isn't. And I think it's Hurst saying to Mank, you're the monkey. You think you have all this control because of all these things, but you don't. And then we see him later on then trying to, I think, exert that that power within what, you know, in his, his conflict with Wells. And to me, that's the dynamic that this film is about. And that's gets to why you know the the why of the whole story it's it's not about oh who's really you know is wells really the author should he get credit should make get credit to me it, do, it doesn't matter because we got a great piece of art and i think all the great art is truly a collaborative effort and it's really about focusing on what's going on with mank and his relation to the power structures you know in, yeah. in hollywood at that time well and i think you know i think I agree with Tom a bit in that that scene in particular ran over long, but that scene is where you get that connective tissue to Citizen Kane, right? In that they pre-sold the parable of the organ grinder's monkey with the vignettes fading to black, and then they pay it off in the end with Hearst finally asserting himself and coming to the table saying, here's, here's why you're in my orbit, that kind of thing. So, No, that, that really puts a, that's an elegant way to put a spotlight on it. So when when you hear, have you heard the in a movie that moves so fast with so much dialogue? And again, if it helps at all, I was never saying that that scene was overlooked. Uh, I was okay, saying okay. the movie, the film the in movie. general. Yeah, yeah. The film in general is overlooked. Where about um, the movie had gone for two hours, and I was like, "This is really good." They're probably wrapping it up, and then I pressed pause, and it said there was an hour and eleven minutes left, <laughs> and I was like, "What's happening?" Because I'm enjoying myself so much, but it did just feel. I think something about the deliberate pace and probably the old timey filmmaking. It's a different way of making films and he really honors that in fascinating ways with the quippy stuff with the don't you promise me you won't laugh and he does that really long overdone laughing it's a it's a fascinating yeah. technical and to piece. a kind yeah. of it was either what was it to a freeze frame or was it to a, a, a slow fade i think it was a slow fade as slow he walks away they're always like, all oh, iris blackouts. i loved it i loved yeah. it and i think that's yeah i I agree with you. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the pause. We've brought that up in a couple of shows during the pandemic, the idea of the pause and what's remaining and how interesting is that right now that, you know, we can only watch movie streaming or for the most part, we can only watch movie streaming. And that aspect of our viewing experience is like, you know, looking at your watch or, you know, pausing to go get a drink or go to the bathroom. Like it's, it's really yeah. interesting how we're faced with that and how we consider the film, consider any film with that. Uh, tactic or with that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that thing that we can do in, in place, totally different than the theater experience. 
Well, to a point, though, but in the theater, I would always yell out, how much is left? <laughs> do you guys not no, do that? No, that's, you know. Oh, well, that's, that's just, that's you. maybe that's so, a California so thing. So right. to, to set the record straight, the movie is two hours and 11 minutes long. So, okay, correct. Okay. So it's it's not... Didn't I say end game? It is. Well, not. I said that it was. I said that one hour in okay. or two hours in, it looked like. I fe- oh, I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. It made it feel like I no, was no. two hours. And I, in. I, I get what you were saying, yeah. but it is not. And but I agree. There is something about this that there is a there is a lot of story. There's a lot of. Uh, we're in a lot of different places. We're in a lot of different periods in time, and that's and, and what that it is, is. Is it's packing so much, so much yes, in? Because if you looked at that in a yes. small. Yes. Oh, Steve, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so s- <laughs> glad that you said that. You actually solved the cognitive problem that I was having is I'm so invested in having so much fun. Why does it feel like it? It's because everywhere. all of the jumps you've around. Been everywhere yes. Because you've been in 1940 and That's you right. go through multiple places in the past through that. And right. so you, you geographically, there's a lot of places you go. And I think. It's something I've figured out of like, why sometimes, why does a movie feel so long? It's like, well, how long are we spending in each of these places? And in 15, because you can, I think it's, pro, I was probably, I was, I was about an hour in because it's, it's the scene where Mank and Marion Davies are outside. They're having their conversation. He's doing his clever wordplay and quoting Cervantes and, and all that. Oh, after her yes. maybe yeah. uh, meltdown her at the, right, her, her, faux her version of the so, meltdown. So I, yeah. I catch something, I catch that little you know, up in the corner. And I don't know why I caught my, that little like, you know, cigarette burn mark of like when they switched the reels. And I thought after I finished and I saw it for the rest of the movie and I thought, lots of times. Yeah. Okay. I only, I'm like, he didn't start doing that 56 minutes into this movie. And I'm like, why did I not catch it earlier? Because there is so much, so much going on. And that right. scene, yeah. that scene the, goes The first slower. one was in about 21 right. minutes. It's, yeah. It's, it's which yeah. is typical for like what a real film is, but it was the fact that I didn't notice it because there's so much going on, so much to pay attention to. That was like the first scene there at that hour mark where the movie's slowing down a little bit and you've got that they're doing their walk and talk, you know, they're out there for a while. Yeah. Whereas everything else was a lot of information, a lot of new characters, a lot of things going on in that first hour that can make that feel a, a lot fuller, a lot longer Interesting. than well, it is. And that's a great point. I'm really glad that you guys are having this revelation. And one thing I want to say to that, and that doesn't that feel like Citizen Kane? <laughs> like that it's loaded yes. with yes. stuff. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Right? Like that's the idea. Like I And and that's the weird sort of parallel to that. You also bring up, uh, brought up this sort of old-timey sto- storytelling too. Uh, Steve, you mentioned earlier that it's an on 8K digital monochrome. I have to ask you, you guys, I think, are maybe smarter in the technology for me. Is it possible that my TV had difficulty handling that? Well, no. This is what I read because I've read a couple of things, uh, interviews with Fincher, where he talked about technically what they were doing. You know, we'll get to the audio mix later. That was another thing that took the, the longest. But he said what they did is they wanted to recreate the look of film shot, you know, like in the forties. So they were, they were softening things. So they didn't use the full range of 8k. I think they, they res things down, you know, as my wife, you know, I was showing her bits and she's like, wow, they're really blowing out those, the whites on some of those. So I think they had to knock, they they knocked a lot of stuff down to get to that look and softer. That was my feeling, especially right at the beginning when we have him or early on when we have him driving out to the ranch and I saw things that would normally be extremely sharp. 
I saw uh, like dust, for example, or these things that would that you would feel would be crisp on screen. It almost it looked as though it were glitching my screen. But I think I think the point you bring up is really key in that they were softening it on purpose to give it a more uh, a more a, a more uh, homage type feel to the old thing. So that makes me feel better because I was nervous that <laughs> I was nervous that I just couldn't handle my HD download no, of, no, no, <laughs> of no. the movie. I, I mean, it's, it's there's always the possibility of the software and Netflix and which version of the app and what device you're watching may have sure. issues with some of that. So I I watched it um, in in my sort of man cave here. And one of the things I do occasionally is when I really want to get into a film, I've got my Roku hooked up and my Roku will let me put my headphones on. So I can really, if I want to immerse myself, I put my headphones on what I noticed. So when a houseman comes in to talk to Mac in the house and I'm listening and I'm like, what is going on? I can almost hear the echo in the room. The the sound felt very flat. I'm like, why I'm not, it's not a surround sound experience. And I, it's one of the things Fincher talked about is the audio mix of going to like mono and flattening things out so that it's all like one track. He said it, t- it was one of the things that took them the longest to do that. But if you go back and listen, and, you know, it, depending on the sound system you've got set up or if you want to plug in your headphones, listen, and you can hear it's not like they're mic'd really well. It's like we're, we've got a microphone planted way up there and it's just catching everything. So we're getting echo reverb something and it just again added to that sense that i'm watching a film that is that was filmed then you know i mean that's that the score i mean if i if i could go to 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 trent reznor in 1989 as he's releasing pretty hate machine and show him hey here's this score oh you're gonna God, do yeah. you're gonna do in 2020 you know he'd be like what are you talking about why would i do something like that but it's amazing it feels so much of the era apparently they were limited to instruments of the period but everything in this I it thought, just felt i thought the score was masterful i was so happy with the music i thought in every scene it matched exactly how i was feeling i it's it's one of the it's definitely the best score i've heard of 2020 i'll say that and i think um i don't remember a score meaning so much to me about the feelings i was feeling in a film for a long time I, I'm really happy about that because I think it. it I, I think, well, Fincher and 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 uh, Reznor work together, right? Yes. And this oh, is, yeah. They're, yeah. They work together, but the fact that they they are on the same page creatively in a way that that makes me just happy to take in the movies as it comes there. And we're jumping a little ahead a bit oh, to yeah. the music, but, but I think it's, the, it's totally appropriate. It's the collaborative piece about the to me, it's all about immersing you in an era, and it's the way everything looks, the way everything sounds. So that you that it feels authentic to that because it it doesn't feel like a film made in 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 2020. It feels like a film. And I know that's what Fincher was striving for. From you know even the, the the opening credits, it's a film that was made the year that Citizen Kane was made. How do we create that for the audience? And for me, that's one of the things that brings me such joy in this film is being able to just really feel that place in time. I 100% agree. And also, it is very much in the writing. Oh, yes. Of whether it's uh, the older Fincher or uh, noodling, that, <laughs> to use first <laughs> words, uh, noodling that have been done later. But there's little parts of like during that very long scene when he's, uh, when Mank is walking out with Marion Davies and they walk by the uh, monkey cage in Hearst Castle. And she goes, Nobody but nobody makes a monkey of W. Like, there's such a. W.R. Hurst right. is the rich, and they both go, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. like it's not totally funny, 1930s. but it's so of its time, right? 
Like the the writing, the the uh, uh, insistence on always showing that's from the exact same shot every time a car drives away from where he's sequestered because that was a kind of a cool shot yep. back then. Yep. That was like a lot of things. It's a fascinating look into really doing what Steve and you were saying of like immersing you back. And that's one of the reasons I think I found the film so entrancing and also somewhat relaxing. It is not a relaxing film. It has the, one of the most terrifying parlor scenes I've ever seen in my entire life. Not even the one where he shows up drunk. The first one, uh, when, when she makes her faux pas before they go out for the monkey scene, when Every single sentence is right on top of the other. Everything is a spotlight. Everything is like, I mean, it's social anxiety played to the max is so, and done oh. in a way and, and filmed in a way that is amazing where every, everyone in this social conversation at this party is on stage. It's just, it's really wonderful. 100%. And it's an, it's entrancing in its terror. Right. I mean, yes. that's, I, and that's really wonderful. And that's, you know, we talk about, I think the script is, is, is wonderful, uh, you know, and, but the other thing about it that I want to bring into it, that's Jack Fincher. That's, that's the elder, right. It is, how does this, how is this a David Fincher movie? I also do. I like what you said. I like that it embraces the corniness. Yeah. What we would now call corniness right. of that era right. is what I wanted to say. How is this a David Fincher film? Well, it's first and foremost, it is a technical Masterpiece. Yes, it really is. I, I see that as well. D- do you see Fincher's style at all? I mean, because obviously he's 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 going to a costume party in the 1930s, right? In in his direction. So so what is Fincher in the 30s versus somebody else in the 30s? Where do you see Fincher come through in what we're in what we're seeing on screen? Ironically, it's the warmest movie I think he's ever made. Interesting. And that's just kind of because you Black think of warm sometimes with color. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is kind of, but it is the most, it's the warmest movie I think he's ever made. It's still weirdly finchery cold in that you don't, as I already brought up, you don't really get a sense of Mank as a person. He is a vehicle to move things for. But those are the first two thoughts off the top of my head, Steve. For, for me, it's, if I think of Fincher for, for this one, I go to social network where it's an examination of a person and power and corruption. And, oh, and yeah. because it's a lot of his, a lot of his other, you know, one of the things I saw, I was like, oh, you know, typical Fincher fans are going to be disappointed because it's not a, a gory, you know, detective serial killer type of thing. And I know that's, you know, seven and his series on Netflix, you know, Mindhunter gets, gets, gets into that. But when I think about, what what I see is commonalities. I go to social network because it's an examination of a historical era and something that was a, a pivotal piece there and really getting into not necessarily the people, but what's what's the underlying politics and power struggles that were part of that. Because with social network, it's not so much a biography of Zuckerberg. It's about his, his the whole thing. The framing structure is the the legal, you know, structure of him with the the Winkle Winkle. Winkle Winklevoss, Winklevoss, the Winklevi, right? The Winklevoss twins. (laughs) And it's that dynamic of who really owns Facebook. And, you know, here we have who really owns Citizen Kane, but it's not so much about that. It's what led to that. What were the people, why did, why did he make those choices and get the same thing in Max? So for me, that's where I see the Fincherness of it. Um, Unfortunately, when you do that, you're, you're taking Jack Fincher and you're holding him up against Aaron Sorkin. And so that, that's, you know, you can't compare writers like that. But I think in terms of the style, approach, all of that, I think 
thematically, that's where I would see the the similarities. Well, and I think that's great. The one thing that I, I I wanted to jump ahead, you know, usually we move on to cast after this, but I wanted to mark the cinematographer on this movie as well, and that's Eric Messerschmidt, and he he's worked with Fincher a lot, but not other than Mindhunter, which he's done here uh, with TV. His other stuff is gaffer work. So he was he was a, a director of lighting. He was a lighting technician on Gone Girl and uh, on I mean he and and Ant Man, which I think is interesting too. But it's, <laughs> it's like he's the DP on Legion, which is oh, yeah. one of my favorite. Oh, he yes. did he did three episodes for Legion, but he's that's one of my favorite shows on TV. And but you look at his credits, and the majority of it is not cinematography things. The majority of it is other things. This feels, and I and I don't know the backstory enough here, but it feels like uh, Fincher given one of his guys a shot, and I think it's beautifully done in the camera here. Like I'm, I'm really excited to see this guy coming out and doing this stuff when the bulk of his background as as a DP, as a cinematographer, is is in TV. Like this is a great first, well, and it's not a first movie, but it's a great big movie for him to jump on the scene when he's been doing all this other work. It's it's really exciting. So um, I loved the camera in this movie. I did too, but that's interesting that you say that of giving someone a big shot. This movie is beautifully filmed, but it is also on purpose hampered by the... Um, they seem to almost completely be using older technology, right? Meaning it's all just little levers and maybe a train track shot, maybe a dolly or something like that. But so maybe by robbing him or her of all of the potent, all of the possibilities, they can really nail the stuff that matters for a movie like this, which is like lighting, which is like all of that kind of composition instead of having a, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, the camera can be anywhere or like a insane, um, what's his name? Hobbit Magoo. The camera should be everywhere Peter Jackson. at yeah. all times. Peter Jackson. That's the, would one. you guys, yeah. so now I didn't see this movie, so I'll need you guys to, to, but how would you compare it to a movie like the artist? I haven't seen the artist. You haven't seen it either. So, I saw the artist. Yeah, I mean, Uh-oh. that's the kind of thing, right? Where it's black and white. It's a, it, you know, this, it, if it's of the time, I, I I was still blown away with. It. I think your point is well taken, Tom. In that those those handcuffs that they gave themselves probably limited them in the terms of creativity that they do. But the the homage that they take in those leaps, I think, is valuable enough it, for me in appreciation of the film that I was 100%. extremely happy with what I oh, saw. Oh yeah, I mean, there's. I think you you have a template in Citizen Kane of what you need some of these shots to look like. And the I mean, the one that stood out to me, and it, it there there may be more. It, been a long time since I've seen Citizen Kane, but the most obvious is that night. The it's early on when um, Lily Collins, the transcriber, uh, you know, she gets the letter from you know her her boyfriend. He's missing, and then Mank, you know, goes on his little drinking binge, and we've got the shot of her down in her room, come walking into his room, and then the bottle drops out of his hand, and then we get the shot there by the bedside, which is like replicating the opening scene from Citizen Kane where he drops the snow right. globe. And it was things like that where I thought, please don't do too much of this. But that that sure. gives me it gives me the it gives me the feels for for right. this because it puts me right in there. And I think there are mm. a lot of those pieces where, you know, it's they're replicating or they're inspired by 
things from that era. And I think that helps, you know, one of the greatest things you can do creatively is give yourself limits like that. Cause it's going to force you to think outside the box. It. And they had a template to, to go by. You've got a whole era of films to be looking at. How would they have done this? And to, to recreate that, uh, I think to not have done that would have been a great error. This film, because it, it would have, We'd been putting the camera, you know, in all kinds of weird places. It wouldn't have, it would have lost that feel. And I think there's something about the the richness, the lighting, because you know we talked about the the iris fades, but it's not just that. It's like if you look, like the background lights go down first, and that you know it's like we get right we get multiple ways. It's actually also practical. Yes, we've got practical. You know, the way lights in the background go down, and then we'll get the iris. All of those things of it's not just a, a quick fade to black. It is happening in stages, and it just gives it so much. You know, I, like you said, Tommy, there's some warmth to this film that I that I did not expect. And it, it may be those things that that bit of nostalgia or humanity to it, that it's not cold and technical you can feel the people behind the scenes. To that idea also about putting handcuffs or restrictions and how that can be the most valuable. I don't have all the proper downs for this anecdote, so I wish me a lot of luck. <laughs> but very famously, it was either George Lucas or Zemeckis that I believe told um, Steven Spielberg he shouldn't make Schindler's List mm. because you can't have a crane shot in a Holocaust. Oh, uh. and then when Steven Spielberg made it, he did some equivalent of like, look, ma, no crane shots. Right. Like he didn't, he robbed himself of all of his Spielbergisms. I hope that 1% of that story <laughs> is true. It sounds like I read a headline and then like moved on and then drank a bunch, but I'm pretty sure something like that is true. And that's very to your point of it makes so much sense. It would have been such a, I wouldn't, I don't even know if consciously I would have realized what it was robbing if they had done any Fincher ish. Like Fincher would have started the entire movie from inside a right. pencil <laughs> and like come out, inside you know, the mean? typewriter like, keys or something like that. Yes. Inside yeah. the typewriter. Yeah. yeah. It would have been, but I mean, to, to handcuff, like you said, is a great word to handcuff himself from all those. It does make it a very warm, richer feeling because again, I'm all I'm doing is repeating what Steve is saying is it just immerses you in that. Time. Yeah. No, I think it does too. And I and 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 I was really happy with it. I I think I think it's a creative leap and I think it's one that they executed really well. Uh in moving to looking at the performances, we've talked a little bit about uh, Amanda Seyfried um and a little bit about Gary Oldman. I think they're the two kind of primaries here. They're the people that stuck out the most to me in this movie. I thought Gary Oldman was 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 great, but again, more about telling Manx stories. I thought he added acted drunk really well. <laughs> Right. I mean, yes. that's, he's got to yes. do that. Right. That's key yes. to what his character is doing. <laughs> How did you guys feel about Gary Oldman? Oh, no, I thought he was um, it's uh, Mank can be seen as a little bit of an insufferable character. Right. Can be. Yeah. He's always the smartest person in the room that knows and thinks he's the smartest <laughs> person in the room, which is a terrible connection to have in one person. And yet he was really Charming and interesting and very captivating to hang a movie around one person who is either has his weird foot out and is like convalescing in a bed looking sweaty <laughs> or walking around making everyone else hate him. He was very captivating. And I think that that's an enormous uh, asset. I think he delivered it really well. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, it's one of these things where which Gary Oldman do you get? 
with this, right? Because you can get the whole like scenery chewing Gary Oldman. You know, do you get the Gary Oldman that's you know behind all the makeup and all that? And it's it's a different. You know, there there was a humanity he brought out, and I think it was key scenes like the one early on where uh, you know he says you know he finally hit his equilibrium where you know he doesn't want to work with half half the you know, writers and the other half don't want to work with him. And it's this scene where he's been out drinking. He's, he's drunk. His wife's putting him to bed and it's like, okay, what is, what is, what am I supposed to get out of the scene? And it's, he's insufferable. He knows it. And he asks the wife, you know, why do you put up with me? And for me, it it redeemed that relationship because it could have too easily been the, Oh, I, you know, she's out on the East coast. I'm out here on the West coast. Oh, poor Sarah. I'm, you know, a womanizer. I'm drinking. I'm all, you know, and I've got the, the old ball and chain back East, but that wasn't the nature of that relationship. And I think that scene had to happen early on so that we knew that he really legitimately cared for her. And so that whatever he's doing out West, you know, we know that as strained as that relationship may be, there's something there. Cause even later on, when we get to that uh, scene, you know, the parlor scene at Hearst, you know, when Marion Davies runs off, he, he looks to Sarah first and Sarah says, no, you go, go, right. go. Right. You know, so it's, he, he doesn't, it's not like, Oh, I got to go, you know, like Marion's my you know friend and I've got to, he consults the wife first. So there's, right. the, I've been so conditioned by, Hollywood movies that I was always being like, don't try to hook don't up do with something your creepy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Don't do something creepy. Right. And he never no. did. Right. And that was just so like refreshing and wonderful that it never even, there was never even really the hint of, um, uh, like temptation. Right. Make, yes. make Hollywood it was just the a 1930s growing of friendship. Yes. what you're saying, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think, you know, Gary Oldman brought that humanity point. to, to it where it wasn't, you know, I wasn't wondering like, is he going to, you know, which accent am I going to get? You know, is, is all that I felt like, you know, it was Gary Oldman. Is it an Oscar worthy performance? I don't know that it's that I, it may take me another couple watches to see other subtleties to this. What is he really doing with this character? But again, it's not a character piece, but I think, you know, you needed a talented actor to be able to carry this film. And I think, I think you're right that Amanda Seyfried is those two are the ones that really carry this film. When we get to that scene at the end where, you know, he asks what for forgiveness, if the movie comes out and she says, you know, forgive me if it doesn't. Um, Great scene. You know, the, right. there's Super that, well that, that relationship between those two and he, he, that he is adamant, adamant that the character in the movie is not her. You know, that it's, right. you know, everyone knows it's hers, but it's, no, that, that's, friends. That, that's yeah. not Marion Davies. That's not who that is. And, you know, and it's, he believes that. Does everybody else believe it? You know, I, I debated this and I thought, well, if he's got to create a character that is identifiable as Hearst, you've got to have this other woman there and to know that he never intended to insult Mary, at least in this story, you know, historically, what do we know, you know, about, about their relationship? At least in this story, it was, there was respect. There. And, and to me, that helped with the relationship of these two actors with these roles really carrying this film. I love it. And I think, I mean, for me, the rest of the cast was kind of, um, and maybe it's because it's black and white, but somewhat nondescript to me. They were more, they felt more like bit players. And I don't mean that in any disrespect. The only other one that I really, really stuck out to me is Bill Nye, not British <laughs> Bill Nye, but Bill Nye, the science guy being Upton Sinclair for a kind of odd cameo when he's giving his, yes. his speech there. But um, it, that was actually Bill yes. Nye. Yeah. 
<laughs> when right? I watched it, I was like, that guy looks like Bill Nye. Exactly. I never occurred. I didn't stay throughout the whole credits because yeah, I, I didn't did. know if there was like a scene to find out if like Thor gets another hammer. I I'm, I'm always scared about post credits. I did scenes for that, that reason. Yeah. And the weird thing is it's kind of hard to watch credits on Netflix, but that's a whole different thing. So were there any other performances that you thought stuck out uh, that you would want to talk about in that group? Yes. I thought that uh, speaking of Sarah or poor Sarah, that in most movies would be a completely throwaway role. Sure. Um, and A, the script worked to not make it throwaway. And B, she was captivating. Yes, she was. I loved every single scene she was in. She really gave Sarah just her own will her own personality her own thing to not just sort of be a shadow or someone that exists in the spotlight of the man of the movie which is outstanding i thought she was great um and i thought amanda seyfried was great we already said that she's you know tied with a lot of uh rough of the time lines and like i'm they're about to you know, burn me at the stake and I'm desperate for a Siggy poo. But it, like, it was all, it was all so perfect in context. Yes. Perfect in context. It was so perfect in context and so consistent. Yeah. And Sarah, she was just really good. Yeah. Sarah is Tuppence Middleton, um, which, uh, you know, I refuse to believe that that's her real <laughs> Well, name. she was, you know, she's from Downton Abbey. She's, you oh, know, okay. from a bunch of different things. But I, but I hadn't seen her before. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I really liked her scenes. She did give presents to a character that would normally not have presents. I think that was special. Right. Uh, I thought Arliss Howard as Louis B. Mayer was exquisite as being the worst <laughs> person, one of the worst people in the movie. His walking speech uh, was oh. my fa one of my favorite oh. speeches in the movie. When he gets into you know this was, concept of the buyer, you know, the buyer gets nothing for for what he purchased it in yeah. memory. Like I just, I was all over it. I loved everything about that. Him describing the industry. The cool. I'm so glad that you brought that up because the coolest thing about that speech for me is that it didn't. It would have been very easy for Fincher or him or together to allow it to go into Cohen territory, like in the in, in the official Hail Caesar, and all of a sudden they're talking like Dateline, right? You know, they're like, hey, everybody here. But he just he didn't. He felt like a real person yep. who just disagrees with the morals of the movie right. well a real person yeah, that yeah. is living that power structure which he right. describes right. which i thought was right. really just well done and and again you you know you compare it to a sorkin movie yeah. it's it's that kind of speech it's that kind of legendary speech where you yeah. pull it away and you go oh yeah this is this is the meat here in this part of the movie and i love that yeah steve did you have any other other uh actors that you that caught your eye um you know it, it's always the challenge to when you're dealing with real people of like do you cast the best actor for the role? Do you cast somebody that's, you know, bears a, you know, physical resemblance to them? Uh, I, I mean, I think the other one is, you know, our, 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 our creepy, you know, William Randolph Hearst, you know, Charles Dance of Fancy. just oh, yeah. a really interesting person who we, we, first, yeah, we meet, first meet Pops, you mm -hmm. know, and he's, he's Pops. shooting his little movie on, on his <laughs> so back lot. Creepy. But his introduction to Mankiewicz is, you know, clearly the man's, brilliant because he understands the power of this new medium of of film that bank is like why are you interested in you know in this thing and it's the power of of storytelling and to me that you know the silence that he has and the and the power that you know he doesn't need to speak but when he does it's important and i think you know 
Charles Dance was able to embody that sort of eerie creepiness of, you know, I presume that Hearst, you know, had. And I think that's, you know, you need to have those. You've got to have believable people that can embody what that character represents as an ideal is how I, I look at that. The restraint that he has during that entire drunken mank scene when he storms the uh, costume party, when he's just has a bemused look, every single other person in the scene has to react. They cannot handle the silence. And he I mean, that's so much restraint for an actor and a director to just be like. It was it was perfect. And, and to it, give it, him, as far yeah. as I'm concerned, that's what William Randall first looks like now in my life <laughs> forever. Because yeah. that it was it was perfectly portrayed by dance there. Was William Randolph Hearst also shot by a crossbow on a toilet? <laughs> Is that a Game of Thrones <laughs> reference? Oh, yes, I don't even know. <laughs> but apparently that scene, that drunken costume party scene, I believe, from what I've read, um, they did like hundreds of takes oh, on, sure. on that to get that. Yeah just right like, i mean that's it's that's edited to get together yes. perfect yes then. that's yes. that's super wonderful uh you know moving on it, it, if there's things that you guys want to say in closing here i would love to tell you where it went on my flick chart path because it is a super <laughs> i find it really interesting <laughs> and comparing this movie to the other movies on our flick chart oh uh, is a really interesting task as well are there other things that you guys would want to say to close up before we before we move on I'm good. I hope I wish for a world where everyone that even if you're not versed in old Hollywood or Orson Welles, that you're able to enjoy this movie as much as I was. There's nothing snooty about that phrase. It's just I I long for the world that Steve Sarmento <laughs> yes. is, you know, suggests yeah. because this movie is really worth watching and is for as Dense as it is, it is extremely interesting. And I, I like the optimism in Phoenix. Right. Well, and I, I'd say for, you know, in in a year where we've had elections and fake news and media, I think this is this is something that, you know, it's not an escape from all of that, but there is <laughs> there's something redeeming for me about watching this to know that, you know, no matter how true or not the facts are, there's universal truths. And I think this touches on this, you know, that we need to be cautious about entertainment and how it can manipulate us. And for me, that's the the primary takeaway. Um, and I, for me, that's, you know, Manx's realization is that, you know, his tool, you know, the, the power that that is there in the studios and his attempt to, to take that power from himself. Um, it's, you know, it's the whole like David and Goliath type of thing of the little guy trying to strike out against the, the big institution. And we're, I think we're still in that place. And I just encourage people to, to go watch this. It's not going to solve any global problems, it, but uh, hopefully it's going to spur some discussion. And if anything, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, watch this, then go watch Citizen Kane and just really. No, we said the other way well, around. Okay, Citizen yes, Kane go first, watch Citizen Mank. Kane and then Mank <laughs> and just really, you know, I think enjoy a, an era of really good storytelling that can just take you on a, on a nice journey. Well, and I think I like what you said. I don't know that it's the cure to the right. strife and the political corruption and the stuff that we're seeing today, but it may be some medicine for some of the symptoms. Yes. And I think movies like this can be. It can remind you that we've been dealing with this for a while and we need to keep going after it. So uh, moving on to Flickchart, we, we've got all the movies we've talked about on this show ranked over at flickchart.com slash TNR Film Board. Flickchart is a really cool site where you can create a tournament style stack ranking of your movie preferences. So check it out and find out how uh, your film favorites fare against ours. 
I said that all of the films that we uh, have seen are there, but we're actually going to do a special member episode to make sure that we're all caught up. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. My flick chart path with Mank was that it beat mm. Mr. Nobody. Now, Steve, okay. these guys hadn't seen Mr. Nobody that we talked about last week. It lost to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Interesting. And I just felt, you know, Last Crusade's kind of epic for me. It beat Caddyshack. Yep. Lost to Brazil. Interesting. Lost to Black Panther, which I, mm. you know, I'm, I'm very attached yes. to Black Panther. It beat the Disney Robin Hood, which I don't <laughs> think is a surprise. Um, it beat Contagion okay. and then beat Ocean's 12, okay. which yeah. beating oh. Soderbergh twice in a row for me is a big thing yeah. to say. Oh, yeah. Even when it's Fincher. So for me, for what out of what, um, it's 84 out of 244. Uh, movies there so it's it's definitely on the top side i'd like to hear if any of you guys uh if any of those movies you know sparked some controversy into you and where you would have placed it (laughs) for me it put it at three and a half stars and a like for me in terms of uh what i thought about mank how about you well i will say that it came in very high i don't have my exact path that it came in but if you uh if you do your flick chart and you you click on Mank, you'll get some stats about Mank. And it will say, you know, as of right now, it says 99 users have ranked it. It says one have it in their top 20. That's me. It comes in at, num- it comes in at number You're 18. Number 18 out of 659. And it is just That's below, huge. just right under number 17 being I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, So for me, it's a solid four and a half stars. I just really love this film. It's one that I think is definitely rewatchable. And it just warmed my heart, you know, in the cold month of December, just the, the technical, the technical genius of this film, everything. And to me, just great storytelling, great dialogue, all those things came together and made it just a really, truly enjoyable. Nice. How about you, Tommy? What did you think? I liked it. Perfect. What'd you rank it? Oh, I ranked it as 4.5. Oh, I don't have flick chart. No, I know. That's what doing... I'm talking about. You got a 4.5. Okay, a letterbox. And a, and a, and a heart. And a heart. There. So yes. you liked it too. And, uh, you know, with the math on that, that puts us at, let's see, 9, 12.5 divided by 3. We're up above 4. We're like 4. And uh, yeah, so you're right. It's 4 and some. I think I'm still weighing it down. Oh, no, but no. Because point... it's divided by 4. That's divided by 3. There we go. 4.16666667. There we go. Yes. I uh what I would say about that is I uh, the reason why it happened the way that it happened for me is that when I put it up against movies that I found to be epic stories, uh it I I wanted the epic, you know, fictitious stories more than than this, which I I still think this is a it's a superior movie. Um but for me when it would compare to those other things, that's why I have it down around a 3.5. I think it's a great movie. I am still um, I am still uh, interested to see uh, if people who don't know old Hollywood or don't care as much about old Hollywood um, it, it will like it as much as we did. I would like to suggest in, if there was a time machine that instead of being called Mank, it would be called America, which was the original title of the original oh, script that's a great, of Citizen Kane. Isn't it the American? Because it's so much it's about... American. Is it the American? Yes, I think so. um, then I would like to change it and say it should be called Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, 
that, that, that that's the one thing that, you know, that's one of the things that we bumped against was the fact that it's called Mank. Right. You're waiting for the Mank story. Right. It's just not. Instead, it's really, it turns out to be a story about Hollywood, old Hollywood, current Hollywood, auteur theory, and politics and America. Right. Which is a big deal. And it should, people should know that. And people should come yeah. to the movie for those things, too. Oh, yeah. Okay, what's next? Where do we go from here? We are going to do a number of things. And uh, I talked about this a little bit when we were, we were going through FlickChart. There is going to be an official, the next real FlickChart ranking of the film board movies, going back to our incredible <laughs> re-ranking last June. We're doing it again? Well, no, no, no. You know, that featured the, the five silly guys that, that, that made that an all-day slog, right? We're going to be on it again, but we're going to have new guidelines to make it more snappy and efficient. Oh. So uh, it's okay. going to be fun. It's going to be quick and it's going to be enjoyable. We're starting all the way back at Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And this is to sort of <clears throat> update to where we are and we're running right up here to Mank. So it should be <clears throat> a great review of the films that led us into and through the pandemic to this point. That's going to come up as a member bonus for the folks who are a member of the next reel of the film board in particular. Um, and it'll come up in, in December. How do you become a there. member again? You go to truestory.fm. You can learn about all the different uh, the different shows within the network and it'll show you how to join there. And it's really great with subscriptions great. and things like that. Also, there's a little Christmas gift for some people out there in the world. Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be released on HBO Max and in some theaters too. I don't, are there theaters open, you guys? Yeah, there are probably yeah. some. Where? Not in California. Australia. Oh, right. Well, worldwide. So this is the thing. But um, but we're, the ocean. We're going to do a show about it because we Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be a huge release. And, and, and just getting back into some of those blockbusters that are coming out, we want to talk about them. It's going to be great. So there's lots of new stuff planned for the film board, and it all gets started later this month. In the main show on the next reel, Pete and Andy are talking about the Underworld series, and I think they've talked about three of them how how many underworld movies are there do you guys know there's like six five or seven six, so many they're making one right now the lichens <laughs> and the yeah so i am not an underworld fan but it's it it's great to talk about and everything that's there because there, there is some really innovative stuff for action and action horror and that kind of stuff so i think it's a really cool series so check that out as well i mentioned it a little bit in the show up open but i want to reiterate that a great way to keep up with all of us is over on discord come find us at truestory.fm like we just mentioned and we'll get you onto the server where we discuss uh, anything any of us or any of you find remarkable from throughout the entertainment universe you can come join our fun film family it's appropriately socially distanced because of the wonder of the internet <laughs> That's where we'll keep the conversation going. But for this one, say goodnight, Tommy Handsome. Goodnight, Tommy Handsome. And one more word from Steve Sarmento. Hondo. At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. 
And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grand's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 